Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable Skiing in Baltimore, Maryland. Actually, I'm at the, uh, the uh, Arnold Annex of the firm here in my house. As always, we like to uh, open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support and uh, calling in today. We ask that uh, you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out uh, one of our podcasts. We also ask that you like and or share our various Surety Today posts on our social media platforms. When you do that, uh, of course, it lets all the Surety folks that are following you or connected with you see the post so they can join in. Uh, Remember, of course, you can listen to any one or all of the prior 71 episodes of Surety Today, anytime, anywhere from uh, any one of our multiple platforms. WCSLaw.com is our Surety Today page on our uh, website uh, as a podcast at uh, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today. We also have that uh, small micro site at uh, suretytoday.net. As always, we've uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. You know, in June of 2019, I did podcast episode live on the road from the Eastern Bond Claims Review Conference in New Jersey. Our firm had just become a co-sponsor of the EBCR, uh, joining several other uh, fine law firms and consultants. And this year, the uh, EBCR and the Surety Today podcast has once again coincided, but uh, uh, I'm not at the conference. Our very own Rich Pledger is at the conference and I believe was presenting today. If you have never been, you should give it a try. It's a, it's a nice, uh, what I'd call a quick hitter. Uh, there's, a, there's a cocktail party and a dinner on Sunday night, uh, a half-day educational program on Monday morning, and then followed by lunch and golf in the afternoon, and that's it. So it's a nice way to get together with friends and colleagues, you know, and, and have some fun. Conference is held each year around this time in central New Jersey. So if you haven't been... Uh, I would recommend checking it out. I mean, of course, we're a co-sponsor, so I'm biased, but uh, it's, it's a nice event. Okay, so our episode today is about uh, the Miller Act payment bond limitations. We will not be talking about the 90-day notice provision of the Act, although the same analysis applies to the date of last work issue. We, uh, we will also not be talking about limitations in any of the Little Miller Act cases because uh, while many of them are modeled on the Federal Miller Act, many states have modified limitations provisions, and there's a, a lot of less, less uniformity in the case law. Although, as we w- will discuss, there's plenty of uh, divergence in the federal case law as well. Uh, as we all know, of course, a uh, Miller Act suit must be brought, uh, quote, no later than one year after the day on which the last of the labor was performed, or material was supplied by the person bringing the action, unquote. 
Uh, it sounds simple enough. You just need to find out when the last labor or materials were supplied. In practice, it is uh, surprisingly more complicated. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, the court um, in the Sixth Circuit observed that how to determine exactly when the last of the labor was performed or material was supplied for purposes of the Miller Act is a fraught question, unquote. Uh, we'll begin our analysis by covering some of the basics. So uh, the first issue is whether the, the Miller Act statute of limitations is jurisdictional. You'll see that issue discussed from time to time. Uh, to start, that's a threshold question. Is the one-year limitations provision jurisdictional? Early on, some courts held that the Miller Act's limitations period was a jurisdictional prerequisite to suit. The issue um, has some relevance because if the one-year period is jurisdictional and the suit is filed after that one-year period has expired, the court would then be divested of any power to address the claim whatsoever. Uh, it would not have subject matter jurisdiction. Further, if it were a jurisdictional issue, it could be raised at any time, including by the court sua sponte, and the limitations defense could not be waived by the parties. I mean, you could, you could waive limitations after the trial of the case. I mean, it's, it's just something, the subject matter jurisdiction is something that can't be waived if it was a jurisdictional issue. Whereas if the period is not jurisdictional, then the limitations defense is uh, an affirmative defense that can be waived by a failure to timely assert it. Uh, moreover, if the limitations period is not jurisdictional, well, then the court is free to consider things like equitable tolling arguments. Uh, so the issue uh, would also have some significance with respect to uh, which party has the initial burden of proof. More modern and frankly the better reason view is that the Miller Act limitations period is not jurisdictional. Uh, while not addressing the issue squarely in recent years, the Supreme Court has frequently stated that courts must conduct a thorough detailed analysis before holding uh, that a statute's requirements are jurisdictional in analyzing the distinction between jurisdictional and limitational, the court acknowledged that as a general matter, a threshold limitation on a statute's scope shall count as jurisdictional only when the legislature has clearly so stated. The Miller Act has no such clear statement. The Ninth Circuit in 2013, uh, reversing its prior ruling on the issue, held that a proper analysis of the Miller Act statute limitations makes clear that it is a claim processing rule not a jurisdictional requirement um, and describe the provision as the run-of-the-mill statute of limitations. Uh, so the vast majority of courts have uh, reached the same conclusion as the Ninth Circuit um, and, and, you know, drawing on the Supreme Court's uh, rulings and explanation of the issue have concluded um, that, that there's really just it's, there's no real issue about this anymore. So to me, the issue is pretty well settled, and I think the surety would have a hard time uh, trying to support the jurisdictional argument. Okay, so the next issue let's consider is the, um, the burden of proof. When, it, when a question is raised as to whether a Miller Act suit has been timely filed, who bears the burden of proof to establish that the suit was timely or, uh, or untimely? Uh, as at least one district court um, uh, to have addressed the issues noted, quote, what scant case law exists is divided on whether plaintiff or defendant has the burden to prove that the plaintiff suit was filed within the Miller Act's one-year statute of limitations. Some courts have held that uh, the burden of proving when the material was last delivered to the job site rests with the subcontractor. 
some other courts take the view that the statute of limitations defense is an affirmative defense, which places the burden on the defendant to prove the defense. Other courts have taken the view that bringing a Miller Act claim within the limitations period is a quote unquote condition precedent, and thus it is incumbent upon the plaintiff to satisfy the condition, i.e. to prove that it has filed the suit within one year. Further, if the issue is being raised in a motion for summary judgment, the movement will have the initial burden pursuant to the federal rules. My view, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's not clear, different jurisdictions going different ways on this, uh, depending on the, the, uh, the type of the case, the, the position in the case where the issue is raised. But my view is that it, it doesn't matter. The, the surety should marshal all the available evidence it has in favor of its limitations argument to avoid any failure to satisfy the burden of proof argument that might pop up. So you, you've got to do the homework and get the, get the information together and, uh, and make the best case. Then you don't have to worry about, well, who had the burden and who didn't and whether you met it. The next question or the issue to look at is how do you calculate the time period? So um, as I noted, of course, the Miller Act limitations period is one year. What is a year? What, what if there's a leap year? What if the last day for filing is a weekend or a holiday or the court is closed? Uh, Rule 6A of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure answers these questions uh, and provides in pertinent part that uh, the rules apply uh, in, in computing any time period uh, specified in the rules or a local rule or a court order or in quote, any statute that does not specify a method of computing time. So, and that would be the Miller Act uh, falls within that um, category. So rule 6A uh, by its um, own wording does apply to the Miller Act. Now, under 6A1 of the rule, when the period is stated in days or a longer unit of time, so the Miller Act, we're talking about a year, uh, you exclude the day of the event that triggers the period. You count every day, including intermediate Saturdays, Sundays, legal holidays, and you include the last day of the period. But if the last day is a Saturday, Sunday, or legal holiday, the period continues to run until the end of the next day it is not a Saturday, Sunday, or legal holiday. Federal Rule 6 requires the counting of the days of the year, with the year being 365 days, unless it's a leap year, in which case it's 366 days. A few courts have questioned the applicability of Federal Rule 6 to Miller Act limitations computation analysis, um, but I think that uh, the vast majority um, of the courts uh, have held that Federal Rule 6A is the applicable method of computing the Miller Act limitations period. And we've got uh, lots of cases cited on that issue. Um, in in Time Out Industries, a case out of the District of Maryland, the, the day on which the last of the labor was performed, just to give you a little example, uh, was performed or material was supplied by the claimant was on November 25, 2011. Pursuant to Rule 6A, in computing the one-year limitations period, that day, November 25th, is not counted as the, as the starting point. It's, it's the zero day, not the first day. Rather, the next day, November 26th, is the start of the one-year period. Then, pursuant to Rule 6, every day thereafter is counted, including the last day, November 25th, a year later, 2012. In that... If that last day, of course, as, as the rule says, was a Saturday, Sunday, legal holiday, or the court wasn't open, uh, then the last day to file suit is the following day. 
it seems straightforward, but the, the time at industry uh, court points to a published opinion where a court actually computed the limitations period incorrectly. And there are other cases where courts have called out other courts for getting it wrong and just doing the math wrong. So uh, it's, it's a little confusing in that the actual last day that the work was performed isn't day one for purposes of counting 365. You, you, you go the next day and start counting the day after that last day. And then you include that last day uh, at the end of the, of the year. And that's how it, it becomes the 365 and, and, and covers the whole period. Okay, so we've, uh, we've, we've worked through some of the basics and the mechanics of the uh, Miller Act limitations period. So let's discuss the triggering event, the, the, day, the date of the last work. Should be simple, right? There should be a clear record of the last date that a subcontractor or supplier performed work or provided materials or equipment. Uh, it turns out that it's not so clear in many circumstances. What qualifies as last work has generated a lot of litigation in, in, in analyzing the Miller Act uh, data last work issue. Courts have adopted several approaches. The majority rule holds that uh, last work does not include remedial or corrective work or materials or inspection of work already completed uh, those things do not fall within the meaning of labor or materials and cannot constitute the date of last work for purposes of the Miller Act's one-year limitation period. And, and it's the majority rule because literally the vast majority of cases sort of follow that, that rule. The majority rule was set forth in the, in the well-known Ninth Circuit decision, um, uh, United States for the use of Austin versus Western Electric, uh, 1964. In Austin, the Ninth Circuit adopted this bifurcated test for determining when work performed or material supplied would toll the statute of limitations under the Miller Act, and when the supply of such work or materials has no effect on the running of the statute. The Ninth Circuit's inquiry in Austin focused on the nature of the work performed or materials supplied to determine whether it was more properly characterized as a uncompleted requirement of the original subcontract or as a mere correction or repair of an already performed uh, provision of the contract. The court held that correction uh, or repair materials and labor would not toll the running of the statute, but that the furnishing of labor or materials pursuant to a requirement of the original subcontract would toll the running limitations. So one rationale for the majority approach is that if the plaintiff could extend the time by correcting a defect, the time for such notice might remain in chaos and depend upon the discovery of defects in, in construction over a year or more after completion. So the concern was that, you know, to create some certainty. Once the work is done and the one-year period has begun to run, the finding of some defective work down the road will not operate to reset the limitations period back to zero. Uh, general contractors, owners, whatever, need to have the, the certainty to know that they are no longer going to be on the hook uh, for payment. And so that's sort of the foundation for that approach. Now, the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit have a different test for determining when the one-year statute of limitations begins running in Miller Act cases. These jurisdictions follow the substantial completion rule in which the statute of limitations begins to run excuse me, upon the date, um, the law would hold that the contract has been substantially completed. 
the limitations period is not extended by insignificant work, even if such work is required under the terms of the subcontract. The minority view actually coincides with the minority view in that remedial work does not toll the statute. The real distinction is that the minority view will toll the limitations period while actual contract requirements remain unsatisfied, regardless of the value of such work, while the minority view um, allows the statute to run when insubstantial subcontract requirements have not yet been completed. And there's another um, minority approach called the multi-factor test, and a handful of courts have, have used that as their justification for the analysis. Uh, it's it's so-called multi-factor analysis test or the Georgia electric factors analyzes uh, the date of last work issue. Under this approach, the, the, uh, the courts consider the following factors to determine if the date on which the materials or labor were provided should be the date within the limitation period. Uh, they look at these factors, number one, the value of the materials, number two, the original contract specifications, Number three, the unexpected nature of the work. And four, the importance of the materials to the operation of the system in which they are used. And like I said, there's a, only a handful of cases that, that have uh, um, utilized this approach. Um, but uh, in one example, in the actual Georgia electric case, ballasts had been mistakenly omitted from fluorescent lighting fixtures that had been installed in the project. Subsequently, the electrical subcontractor uh, supplier furnished the ballast, and that date of delivery became the critical date for, for the purposes of limitation. In the, in the trial court, the jury found uh, that the plaintiff uh, supplier uh, had timely filed its claim. The Fifth Circuit affirmed uh, after calling it a close question. One court commenting on these tests stated that, in, in its view, the two minority approaches unnecessarily complicate application of the statute. Statutory test says performed or supplied, doesn't say substantially performed or substantially supplied. Moreover, Congress did not set out any factors for the court to weigh when considering whether the labor or materials a subcontractor supplies are of the right type uh, to fall within the meaning of the statute. Over the years, courts following these approaches have embroidered requirements and exceptions onto the text of the, uh, of the statute that simply do not exist on its face. The malady is obvious. The, the broad remedy Congress provided to ensure compensation of subcontractors who benefit the public by working on federal pro projects has become, in many instances, a subjective line drawing exercise by judges unfamiliar with the intricacies and nuances of construction work. So the bottom line is that uh, you, you have to know, obviously, what jurisdiction you're in uh, in order to determine if one of these minority approaches might be involved. Uh, so, but let's um, let's work through some different issues and scenarios that uh, a surety claims handler is likely to encounter relating to these limitations issue. Uh, first question is, uh, well, what if the last work was uh, post-completion warranty work? The most courts hold that the Miller Act's one-year limitations period will not be told by labor performed or material supply pursuant to a uh, contractual post-completion warranty. Under the majority rule, such work is in the nature of repair or corrective work, and under the minority rule, such work occurs after substantial completion. So 
it would not be uh, proper to constitute the last day to work. What if the materials claimed as the last work didn't make it to the project site? Uh, the limitations period in the Miller Act begins to run on the last day the supplier is furnishing or supplying materials to the project, even if the prime contractor does not receive actual delivery of the goods, would that constitute the last work? Material suppliers have been found to have a cause of action against the prime contractor, uh, provided that the suppliers delivered materials to the subcontractors in good faith and under the reasonable expectation that the goods were intended for ultimate use under the prime contract, even if the materials did not physically end up on the, the project site. In one case, uh, the court observed, as long as there is good faith, actual delivery to the job site or even incorporation in the work is immaterial to the right of recovery under the Miller Act. So even though the materials might not have made it to the site, they still could potentially constitute the last work for purposes of the statute. So some factors that courts look at uh, in, in looking at this last day of work um, um, is, is first would be that courts evaluate the contract language to determine if the work in question meets a particular contract requirement. Um, second, courts look to surrounding evidence during the course of the work it tends to clarify what tasks were considered to be necessary uh, to the original project. So this would be things, of course, like punch lists and meeting minutes and daily reports or logs, communications between the parties, of course, the plans and specifications, applications for payment, <coughs> excuse me, schedules of values uh, in the applications for payment, construction schedules, submittals, shop drawings, et cetera. You got to be able to marshal all of these kinds of things together to show that the materials were or were not part of the original contract and could or could not constitute the date of last work. Third, courts will consider when uh, a final inspection, inspection occurs. Often uh, work taking place after inspection is considered to be repair or, or auxiliary and not factored into the statute of limitations. Um, let's see, what else here? Fourth, uh, courts look to whether contracts have been terminated. They'll look at the issue of, of when the contract was terminated and oftentimes will look at that date as the date of last work because no work should have been performed after that period. And there's a question and you gotta, you gotta look at the, the case law in the particular jurisdictions on these issues, but you know, what if the, if the prime contract is terminated, but not the subcontract, um, you know, and the subcontractor continues to do some work, is that going to be uh, considered last work? And, and in one case, it was held to be the date of last work, even though the prime had been terminated because there was no automatic termination provision in the subcontract. And so the subcontractor uh, was held to be able to have continued doing some work. And so, you know, that issue is, is one that you'll see cases all over the map. Sometimes they say it's, it's a hard line rule, and if there's a termination, that's the date of last work. Sometimes they don't. Uh, another issue that comes up is, you know, in many instances, a supplier will, uh, will make numerous deliveries of materials to a project. In some cases, the supplier will make a delivery that does not get paid and then keeps delivering materials thereafter that do get paid. 
that the supplier filed suit more than a year after the delivery that was not paid for, but within one year of its last delivery of other materials to the project that were paid for, will the claim be timely? So this raises the issue of this one project, one bond rule that a lot of courts have adopted. And it's a general rule that developed in many jurisdictions is that the limitations period for all claims associated with a single project begins to run when the last service or material was provided, regardless of whether the claims are associated with the separate invoices or payrolls. In other words, as long as the services or materials were provided for a single project that was, that was subject to a single payment bond, uh, it is of no consequence that they were captured by separate invoices. Thus, if a, a plaintiff brings its Miller Act claim within one year following the day on which it supplied the last materials for the project, its entire claim will be deemed timely. Um, and, and so there's a, a lot of courts that have sort of gone into that um, taking, going into that rule. But keep in mind, there are some um, jurisdictions that don't follow that, and particularly where there are separate contracts involved. So if the delivery that was made was pursuant to contract one, and then the next delivery was contract two, and the next delivery a separate contract three, then you can run into the situation where limitations would be calculated based on each of those separate subcontracts in certain uh, minority jurisdictions. What about work that um, is done by a sub-subcontractor to a subcontractor? Uh, can the subcontractor rely upon the date of last work of the sub-sub to compute the subcontractor's limitations period? The answer is yes. Courts have held that a, a subcontractor did not have to rely upon uh, only upon its labor um, performed by its own people but could rely upon work of its subcontractors and suppliers for purposes of meeting the, uh, the provisions of the Miller Act. When analyzing the last work uh, issue, pay attention to what uh, the alleged last work is, because not all work on a project is recoverable under the Miller Act, and therefore such work may not be used to constitute the date of last work for limitation purposes. So the Miller Act itself does not define labor, but many courts have uh, limited the term to refer only to physical toil or manual labor. Excuse me. Um, so thus, the supervisory work generally is not recoverable unless the supervisor is also performing manual labor. The fact that a task is performed on the work site does not alone deem it recoverable. Clerical, clerical or administrative tasks, even if performed at the job site, do not involve the physical toil or manual work necessary to bring them within the scope of the Miller Act. Management work is typically considered to be clerical in nature, excluding it from the scope of the Miller Act. Taking field measurements and inspecting materials, for example, uh, were deemed to be administrative tasks incidental to the role as a project manager. While these tasks may require some minor physical exertion, they do not rise to the level of physical toil necessary to recover under the Miller Act. So two, um, uh, a materials inventory has been held not to be within the scope of the Miller Act labor requirement. It was deemed to be a clerical task that did not extend the limitations period. Inspections of work already completed does not fall within the meaning of labor and will not extend the limitations period. Testing of repaired work 
does not extend the limitations period. One court observed that uh, if we were to accept plaintiff's assertion that labor under the statute includes even minor physical activity incident to their contractual responsibilities, it would strip essentially all limitation from the Miller Act labor requirement. Any subcontractor, such as an accountant or an engineer, would then be a proper claimant under the Miller Act so long as they performed their work at the construction site and tidied their office on occasion. <laughs> the court is unwilling to apply such an interpretation to the Miller Act's labor requirements. The next item should seem self-evident, but supplying duplicates will not restart limitations. In one case, submission of final as-built drawings were alleged to be the last date of work, but the as-builts uh, were duplicates of the initial shop drawings submitted at the outset of the purchase order. As such, the court refused to consider the delivery of such duplicates uh, for the purposes of tolling the Miller Act. On the other hand, one court in New Jersey uh, applying a, a minority approach held that supplying of operations and maintenance manuals for refrigeration equipment installed by a subcontractor constituted the delivery of material under the original uh, contract specifications. Um, so, you know, there are cases out there where minor, minor things have been allowed to, uh, to extend limitations. What about the issue of demobilization? Demobilization, of course, is uh, when, a sub, when a contractor is pulling out its forces, equipment, materials, trailers, taking everything for the project site. The question in limitation analysis is whether the fact of de demobilizing constitutes last work. The answer will generally depend on the language and terms of the applicable contract. Uh, in one case out of the Tenth Circuit, the subcontractor demobilized and the court held that demobilization was labor within a, a year period of filing the claim. And in view of the contract terms and provisions, um, demobilization was considered to be part of the contract work and therefore did uh, extend the time. But it, it depends on what the contract says if there's no mention of, of demobilization, then it may not be sufficient to count as the date of last work. What about change order work? I had this come up in a case recently. Uh, in one case, uh, a plumber was required to come and fix a clogged pipe that was caused by another contractor's mistake after his contract work had been completed. The plumber argued that the work was performed as part of a promised change order. The court agreed and held the change order work told limitations period. Of course, um, you know, a change order is an amendment to the original contract, and when the change is finalized, it, be, it becomes part of the contract work. So, therefore, doing that work uh, should not be considered to be repair or corrective work um, in most uh, normal circumstances anyway. Um, let's see. What's the next issue here? Uh, previously supplied materials. This has come up uh, once in a while. Plaintiffs have occasionally attempted to assert that the use of their materials or equipment that they left on site after their departure operates to extend the limitations period. The general rule is that the presence of materials previously supplied by a subcontractor does not extend the limitations period past the date on which such material was actually supplied. Um, there was a unique argument that one contractor made. It was an asbestos abatement subcontractor. And, uh, and they were uh, thrown off the site, uh, but the, the replacement contractor used their abatement plan. And so they argued that their abatement plan constituted the supplying of materials uh, while the work was being completed and tried to argue that extended their limitations period. The court said no. 
last, last item here we'll talk about is leased equipment. And leased equipment can present a more complicated issue. Some courts take the view that as long as the equipment is on site and remains available for use, the limitations period is told. Um, in one case, the court held that when the claimant provides equipment by lease or rental, the notice period begins on the date the equipment was last available for use on the project. Other courts take a different view. In one, court, in one case, the court held that the limitations period began on the date the subcontractor abandoned the project and no longer was using or had use of the equipment on the project. A review of the case law reveals that there are a number of factors that must be considered regarding leased equipment in analyzing the date of last work, such as the terms of the lease, who is permitted to utilize the equipment, who's responsible for the equipment, whether the leasing subcontractor has been terminated, uh, the equipment lessor's knowledge of the fact that the equipment is standing idle, et cetera. So uh, you've got you've to gotta dig into the facts when you're dealing with leased equipment. Um, okay, so we're out of time. Um, I've got to uh, close up here. So the next um, uh, surety today will be on Monday, July 11th at 1230, of course. That's my 35th wedding anniversary. So uh, I'm sure my wife's happy. I'll be do, doing a surety today episode. Uh, tomorrow, if, you, if you're not doing anything, uh, June 14th, the uh, Chicago Surety Claims Association will hold its annual golf outing. On June 22nd through the 24th, the Surety Claims Institute annual meeting will be held in Asheville, North Carolina, and our own Cindy Rogers Ware will be in attendance. Uh, August 17th through the 19th, the uh, ABA FSLC will hold its annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, to make up for the canceled meeting that, uh, that happened this past January. So thank you to everyone for joining me today. And I want to see if I can um, unlock the line. Anybody got any questions about what I've been talking about? Any questions? All right, everybody. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you again on July 11th. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.